welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The Ten Commandments are frequently summarized as love the Lord, love your neighbor. But what does it mean to love your neighbor? Dr. Ligon Duncan, Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary, brings us this sermon entitled The Whole in Our Holiness, which covers Leviticus chapter 19. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Speaking of loving the law and, uh, and loving God, the Lord uh, our God, and our neighbors ourselves, we're going to continue to sit in that this morning, and we're going to do so under the teaching of Dr. Ligon Duncan. Dr. Duncan, if you'll make your way up, we are in for uh, a wonderful treat to hear from this brother this morning. And I want, I want to tell you a little bit about him before, before I uh, step off the stage. He was with us Friday night, Saturday morning, this weekend uh, in our Redemptive Unity sem- Seminar. Fantastic. His approach and the ways in which he anchored us biblically there spoke to some really important things was so very helpful. And so if you missed that, uh, we'll be making those available. Be on the lookout for that. We'll let you know how. But let me tell you a little bit about this brother. He's a uh, He's going to be standing here for a while because i got a lot to say. Uh, there's, there's many things to, uh, to be aware of, and uh, I know he would say all of this is to the glory of God through him. But uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan, he is the Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary. He is the John E. Richards Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at RTS, and also serves as the president of RTS, of Reformed Theological Seminary, in Jackson. Uh, So he oversees all the campuses, but then serves as the president there in Jackson. Uh, He served as senior minister of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson for 17 years. He was the co-founder of Together for the Gospel. You may have heard of that. Uh, He was the senior fellow, or is, or was, is the senior fellow of... I think I am. uh, You are, yeah. yeah. He's got so many things here. He just, I'm not even sure exactly where where he's currently uh, serving. Senior fellow of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, where he's also served as both chairman of the board and president. He was the president of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals from 04 to 2012. And also in 2004 and 05, he served as the moderator of our General Assembly for our denomination. He got his BA, his Bachelor of Arts, from uh, Furman University. I know there's many Furman folks here among us. He got his, yeah, I heard that whistle. Um, he got his Master's of Divinity from Covenant Seminary in uh, Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis and his Ph.D. from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, which immediately makes him very cool. Um, There is so much more to say. He's written and edited and contributed to many, many books and articles, too many to to list here. Lastly, most importantly to him, I'm sure, his wife, Anne, they live in Jackson. They have two adult children, one of which I'm just going to mention, for no particular reason, graduated from the University of Alabama. So... (laughs) Just thought that was important. I want to pray for you. Thank so you, thankful brother. for you. Father, thank you so much for Dr. Duncan. Thank you for the time that he has given us this weekend to be such a blessing to our body here, to your body, oh God. Would you bless him now? Fill him with your spirit. Anoint him. Empower him to preach the good news to us. Make our hearts receptive. receptive mm-hmm. We pray in mm-hmm. Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Jeff. I feel like I've found a new friend in your senior pastor. But this congregation has been near and dear to the hearts of Reformed Theological Seminary for many years. 
Uh, my predecessor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson was Jim Baird. And Jim has always said to anybody who will listen that he thought that the finest young man that he ever mentored into the ministry was Randy Pope. And when Luther Whitlock was, uh, was, was thinking about coming to Atlanta, it was really Randy Pope and Perimeter Church that determined that RTS would come to Atlanta. So we're here in Atlanta, right across the Brave Stadium, uh, up on Terrell Mills Road, in large part because of this congregation. So it's a particular joy for me to be here, and thank you, Jeff, so much for the privilege of opening God's Word. We're going to be looking at Leviticus 19, and I know that you're thinking, Leviticus 19? Come on. I mean, Leviticus is not your favorite Bible devotional book. I understand that. But let me, I, I will say this. I've preached through the book of Hebrews four times in my ministry. I'm an old guy, so I've, I've been able to do that four times. The first three times I preached through the book of Hebrews, I had not preached through Leviticus before. By the fourth time that I preached through Hebrews, I had preached through Leviticus, and it completely changed my appreciation for the book of Hebrews. You know, the book of Hebrews is kind of the New Testament commentary on Leviticus. And so the, the, don't, the, the, the book of Leviticus will sneak up on you. It's, a, it's an amazing book with profound truth in it. And in fact, we're going to see today that the book of Leviticus and the chapter that we're going to look at, Leviticus 19, is the only chapter in the Old Testament that utters the words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's right. Jesus did not invent that saying. When Jesus said that, he's quoting Leviticus 19. And you'll remember when he did it. Um, on one occasion, Jesus was talking with a rich young ruler uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 19, and that, that man said, um, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And in response to that, Jesus said a number of things, but one of the things he said in Matthew 19, 19 was, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 19 when he says that in response to the rich young ruler. On another occasion, a, a lawyer, an expert in the Jewish law, asked Jesus a question in Matthew chapter 22. He said, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, well, you really can sum up the law with two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hang on those two commands. And so when he does that, he's quoting Leviticus 19 as a way of summarizing what the law teaches. And then there's an occasion where a teacher of the law tries to test him. You know, people were always coming up to Jesus trying to check his theology out. Can you imagine that? I'm going to check your theology out, Jesus. But that happened to him all the time. And this lawyer came up to test him, and he asked him the same kind of question about what the great commandment was. And Jesus gave the answer again, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then that, then that lawyer followed up with a follow-up question. He said, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan in that context in Luke chapter 10 in order to expound what law? Love your neighbor as yourself. Because the good Samaritan in that story 
shows what a good neighbor looks like. And here's the interesting thing about the law, my friends. That's what the law is for. The law is to show you what it looks like to really love. The the law gives content and example and substance to what it means to really love. How do you know if you love God? Look at what the law says that people do who love God. How do you know if you love your neighbor? You look at what the law says that people do who love their neighbors. The law shows you how to love. That's hugely important in our day and age because our world likes to say things like this, love is love. Now, when they say that, they often mean this, what? We get to define what love is. We get to define what love is. Oh, no, my friends, God defines what love is. God is the one who gets to say what's loving and what is not. And so, in Leviticus 19, the, which some people will say is the, it's the epitome, it's the high point of the holiness code in the Bible, God says what it looks like to love. But it also does something else. It gives us a motivation to love and to love our neighbor because of who God is. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1, Moses says, uh, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for the Lord your God, I the Lord your God am holy. So isn't that interesting? The, the reason why they are to pursue holiness is because that's what God is like. Now, the Bible gives a lot of different motivations and encouragements to holiness. Sometimes the Bible will say, obey God because he created you. You get the logic there? If he made you, he gets to determine how you ought to live. Sometimes the Bible will say, obey God because he redeemed you. You know, he saved you, so now you live the way. Sometimes the Bible will say, God showed mercy and grace to you, so you live this way. The Bible gives lots of wonderful encouragements to live a godly life, but in this passage, here's the big encouragement. Be like I am. God says to his people, I want you to be like I am. I'm holy, you be holy. This is actually very similar to something Jesus says. You remember when Jesus said, be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, very quickly, Jesus did not mean never sin. He, didn't, he did not mean be sinlessly perfected. Whew, that's good, otherwise we're all going to hell, okay? Um, what he meant, perfect, there is, there's, there's an Old Testament word which God uses with Abraham in Genesis 17, which means to be whole or complete, to be on the outside what you are on the inside. In, in that context, Abraham had said, Lord, I believe your promise that you're going to give me and Sarah a son and you're going to make a multitude of nations out of me. Gen- Moses, uh, Abraham had said that in Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 16, what happens? It's like he completely forgets it and the whole Hagar-Ishmael thing happens, right? 
And then in, how does Genesis 17, 1 start? Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. Now, some of your Bible translations may say, walk before me and be complete, or walk before me and be whole. All of those are good translations. The point, of course, is not, Abraham, walk before me and perfect, be perfect, don't sin. If, if that's what God was saying to Abraham, oops, Abraham's in trouble because he's already sinned. So what's God saying? Walk before me and be perfect. Walk before me and be whole. Walk before me and be complete. He's saying, Abraham, you said that you believed my promise. And, and you, you did believe my promise. In fact, in Genesis 15, 6, I credited that to you as righteousness because you believed in me. But here's the thing, Abraham, I want you to live like that. I want you to live like you say you believe. I want you to walk in faith. I want, to walk, I want you to walk in belief. I want you to really live like my promise is true. Be whole, be complete. Live on the outside like what you have professed your faith to believe. Live on the outside. In other words, don't be a hypocrite. You, you, you said you believed, live like that. So that idea of wholeness is that that, that we're consistent, that, we're, that, that, that there's some integration of our lives, that what we believe actually plays out in how we live. So when Jesus says, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect, he's also calling us to non-hypocrisy, to living consistently with what we claim. And of course, ultimately, it's about being like God. God is holy, so we are to be holy. And that goes all the way back to Genesis 1, doesn't it? When, when, when Adam and Eve are created in Genesis 1, God creates them. What? In his image. In his likeness. Now, what does that mean? Well, he tells them, be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth. Now, what had God done in the creation days? He had been fruitful and multiplied and he had ruled over the earth. How does Genesis 1, 2 say the world was before God did his work of creation? It was formless, empty, and dark, Genesis 1, 2 says. And what does God do in the six creation days? He takes what was formless and he orders it. He takes what was empty and fills it up. He takes what was dark and brings it light. And then he says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, I filled it up, you fill it up. Be like me. Do, do, be in my image. Live in my image. And then he says, rule just like I ordered it, you ordered it. I own it, you're my stewards, but you now order it. You garden the world that I gardened for you. Follow me, emulate me. You're in my image. You're my representative in the world. Be like me. And that's what's happening in Leviticus 19. Why should God's people love their neighbors? Because God is love. Because we're created in his image, and we're to be like him. We're to image him in the way that we live. And Jesus says this repeatedly in the New Testament. In fact, Paul does as well. Paul will say this. 
He, he says this in Galatians chapter, th- uh, chapter 5, verse 14. He also says it in Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. He says, you can sum up the whole law in this phrase. And now you're expecting Paul to say, love God. That's not what he says. He says, you can sum up the whole law in this phrase. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you might say, now, hold on, Paul. Shouldn't you add in love God? No, no, no. Listen listen to Paul's logic here. If you love your neighbor, that is an expression of your doing what? Imaging God. And if you're imaging God, you're glorifying God, right? So John, for instance, will say, you can't hate your brother and really love God. Why? Why? Because your brother is made in the image of God. And God told you to love your neighbor. And if you really love God, you will love your brother. You will love your neighbor. So you really can't fulfill the first great commandment without fulfilling the second great commandment. And so Jesus and Paul and James will all quote Uh, Leviticus 19, when they're trying to help believers figure out what it's like to live for God in this world. And let me tell you, that's a huge challenge in our day and time. I talk to pastors all over the country and all over the world who tell me this. My people struggle with being catechized by the world today. Um, 24-7 news media is speaking into their ears. The internet is speaking into their ears. Their cell phones are are discipling them every day. The attitudes of the world around them are catechizing them, discipling them every day. And I only get, you know, a couple hours a week to try and counteract that. In, In other words, many Christians are struggling with being discipled by the world rather than being discipled by the Word. How do we get at that? How how do we get back at that when there's constant noise in our ears? If, If we simply go to the internet or we simply go to our cell phones or we simply go to the 24 hour news cycle, what will we end up doing? We will end up thinking in terms of the talking points that somebody else has come up with whether it's the left or the right. But we're supposed to live according to the voice of God, aren't we? I mean, isn't that that part of what's going on in the temptation of Eve and Adam? When, When Satan tempts Eve and Adam to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, isn't one of the things going on there the question of who gets to decide what is right and wrong? Do Eve and Adam get to decide what is right and wrong, what is good and evil? Or does God get to decide what is good and evil? That's a battle with all of us because we like to call some things good that are not. And we like to call some things bad that are not. And if our minds aren't formed by the voice of God, by the word of God, We'll call good things that he says are good, bad. And we'll call bad things that he says are bad, good. And when we do that, guess what we're doing? The exact same sin that Adam and Eve committed. 
They were deciding what was good and evil on their own, apart from God's voice. And by the way, God clues you in that that's exactly what's going on by what he says to Adam in Genesis 3. He says, because you listened to your wife's voice. Now, let me just pause there real quick. He is not saying, husbands, under no circumstances, listen to your wives. (laughs) That is not what God is saying. Uh, our, Our Christian wives are a means of grace to us from God, and we would be stupid men not to listen to them, Okay. What's, what's going on there is there's an interplace between three voices in that passage. The voice of God, the voice of the serpent, and then, you know, who, who are you going to listen to? And Eve turns and gives the fruit to Adam, and God says, Adam, you listened to her rather than me. Okay? So it, it wasn't listening to wise counsel to from his wife, that the problem was he didn't listen to what God said. So we're liable to that. So how do you fight back against that? You get, you get God's voice in your bloodstream. You get it down to your toes. You get it into your DNA from his word. And that's what's going on in Leviticus 19. Now, it's a long chapter, so let me, let me draw your attention to just a few specific things because this chapter is going to show you what loving your neighbor looks like. How do you love? How do you love your neighbor? This chapter will show you. Look at Leviticus 19 beginning in verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely or profane the name of your God. Isn't that fascinating? You know, one way you love your neighbor is you don't steal from him. <laughs> one way you love your neighbor is you don't deal falsely with him. One way you love your neighbor is you don't lie to him. But one way you love your neighbor is you don't profane God's name to him either. When you, when you profane God's name, you not only break the first great commandment, you break the second great commandment. It hurts your neighbor for you to profane God's name. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. You can't love your neighbor and oppress him at the same time. You can't love your neighbor and rob him at the same time. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord your God. So how do you... Show love to your employees. Pay them on time. Pay them fairly. How do you show love to the deaf? You don't mock them when they can't hear you. How do you show love to the blind? You don't put things in front of them to make them trip that they can't see. Notice these practical ways of showing love in the passage. Look down at verse 32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. So, Honoring the elderly, honoring our seniors, showing respect for those who are older than us and and according them their appropriate station, that's part of loving your neighbor. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no long. Whoa, this isn't just for Israelites. This isn't just for believers. This is for foreigners, even pagan foreigners. 
We're supposed to love them as our neighbor. Verse 34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. By the way, this passage has the, uh, the most frequent concentration of the phrase, I am the Lord your God, of any place in the Bible. And it's designed to keep saying what? Why do you do this? Because of who I am. Why do you do this? Because of who I am. Why do you do this? Because of who I am. You be like me. Do this because I'm like this. Listen to this. You shall do, verse 35, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and you will observe all my statutes and all my rules to do them. I am the Lord. So even in their business dealings, now if you, if you look at this passage at first, it looks like a hodgepodge. But what, what you're going to find is this. The laws in this passage about loving neighbor have to do, first of all, with family relationships. So, showing respect to parents and, and older people, treating one another as neighbor in the context of family relationships. But there are also laws here about how you conduct business. Be fair in your business conduct. That's what those last laws were about. Be fair. Don't cheat people. Uh, a number of years ago, a Presbyterian minister in another state, I won't say his name because a lot of people in this room would know who I'm talking about, he, he was used by the Lord to lead a brother to Christ. And that man was a very famous businessman in his metropolitan area, and he owned seven or eight car dealerships. And the businessman, after he came to faith in Christ, said to that Presbyterian pastor, I'm, I'm so moved by what the Lord has done in my life that I've decided that we're going to give out gospel tracts at all of my car dealerships. So anybody who comes in to buy a car is going to get a gospel tract. Now, the pastor knew that this man's dealerships had a reputation for cheating people in the service departments. And so the pastor said, okay, that's a wonderful idea to give out gospel tracts. But let, let me, just a little suggestion here. I think it'd be an awesome witness to Jesus for people to say, you know what? They always treat me honestly when I take my car in there to be serviced. So, you know, what a really great way for you to witness to Jesus would be not to cheat people in your service department and charge them more than they ought to pay. Now, that's pretty gutsy for a pastor to do that, but how, how good was that, right? In fact, it probably would have hurt to hand out tracts and keep cheating people in the service department. He was following exactly what Leviticus 19 says. Don't just love your neighbor with your lips. Love your neighbor practically in your business dealings with your life. Now, loving your neighbor can be tricky when your culture thinks that there is something perfectly fine to do which is not consistent with God's word. So in the 18th century in England, most people thought it was perfectly fine to buy and sell slaves and to have slaves. 
But a man named William Wilberforce came along, and he read his Bible because he was sitting under the ministry of John Newton, and he said, you know what? The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. And the Bible also says, don't steal people. And in the slave trade, you steal people, and you don't treat them as their neighbor. And furthermore, he said, by the way, in the doctrine of justification by faith, lets us know that since everybody's saved the same way by grace, we ought to treat everybody the same way. He learned that, again, from John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And so he, he launched a 40-year attempt to abolish the slave trade and to abolish slavery in the British Empire. But the culture thought slavery was just fine. What did he do? He didn't listen to the world. He listened to the word. That's a great example of, of closing your ears to what the world says is just fine and saying, if the Bible doesn't say it's just fine, it's not just fine. Okay? E even in our own day, even in our own day, you know, in the last 10 years, we have seen huge tensions in our culture over racism. You know, really since 2012 and Trayvon Martin, there have been real tensions in our culture over how do we respond to this? How do we understand this? How do we respond to this as Christians? And, uh, and, and the world in our day and time, it's against racism. But here's the thing, it doesn't know why, and it actually doesn't have a good reason. As a Christian, you have a good reason to be against racism. Why? Because God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And because the Bible says, Every human being is created in the image of God. By the way, that gives you a tremendous advantage in sharing the gospel because you will meet unbelievers that are against racism. And if you're good enough friends, I'd encourage you to say, why? And there's not a good answer apart from the Bible. But it can still be hard for Christians to deal with issues like racism. I, I, I'm, I, I've lived in Mississippi over half my life now, and Mississippi is a conservative state. Mississippi is so conservative, our liberals are conservative in Mississippi. <laughs> and um, w during this time of racial tension in the nation, people in Mississippi started asking again, you know what, we've got the Confederate battle flag on our state flag. And that sends a real loud message to 45% of our population that is not good. And uh, a, a godly man named Philip Gunn, who was the Speaker of the House of Representatives and a wonderful Christian man, a member of uh, the Morrison Heights Baptist Church in Jackson, uh, Mississippi, an elder uh, uh, there at the Morrison Heights Baptist Church. He's a Republican Speaker of the House. He said, you know what, we need to change the Mississippi flag because all people are created in the image of God and we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so he, he explicitly publicly said, even though the governor was not for changing the flag, even though many people in the state saw it was a symbol of heritage, he said, we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves well with this symbol on our flag. And Philip Gunn worked to change that flag as a Christian because he believed Leviticus 19 that it was his job to love his neighbor as, his, uh, as himself. So sometimes the culture is right about what it's against, but it doesn't know the reason why. Sometimes the culture tries to redefine love. So let me just speak especially to younger people in the congregation. If 
You believe what the Bible says about men and women, about marriage, and about sex, your contemporaries are going to believe that you are a bigot. They they are going to view you as morally reprehensible. If you believe that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and that that can't change, if, if you believe that God has reserved sex for within a permanent lifetime commitment of a married man and woman and nowhere else, the culture around you is going to say, you're unloving, you're hateful, you're a bigot. Don't believe it. Don't, don't think that this culture is more loving than our God is. I mean, I know that. I, I know that. God forgave me. This culture would never forgive me. That God forgave me. I, I'm never going to think this culture is more loving than my God. So if God tells you something that seems to go against the grain of what the culture says is loving, who's right? Whose voice are you going to listen to? The voice of God or the voice of the world? And so as, as Christians, and, and by the way, there's so many wonderful Christians powerfully and prophetically witnessing to this day. I'm thinking my friends Sam Alberry and Rebecca McLaughlin. Both of them are same-sex attracted, but both of them say this Bible says that marriage is for one man and one woman and that sex is only to be in the context of a one man, one woman, lifetime marriage. And therefore, we are going to follow God's word even though the culture says love is love. We can live any way we want to. And there's a generation of young Christians that are powerfully testifying that we're going to believe the word, not the world. And I hope the young Christians here at Perimeter will go the same direction. But you see, it's, it's sometimes the culture pats you on the back for what you believe. Sometimes the culture shames you for what you believe. But God is always the one who gets to determine what is love and what is not. And nobody's going to be more loving than God. Now let me just pause one more time and say, love your neighbor is not the gospel. Love your neighbor is not the gospel. It's a really important truth, but it is not the gospel. And thank heavens, because I would be going to hell if love your neighbor was the gospel, because I don't love my neighbor, okay? But we have a neighbor who loved us. Jesus Christ the righteous gave his life, laid down his life for me while I was weak, while I was a sinner, and while I was his enemy. And I want you to understand the relationship between love your neighbor and the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for sinners. Christ died for you and me. He paid the price that we deserved. He lived the life that we could not live. And all we do, all we do is rest and trust in him alone as he is offered to us in the gospel. So how does that fit with love your neighbor? Because what Jesus came to do was not just forgive us and not just make us God's children, but also to begin the work of making us like God again. You know, when Adam and Eve took that fruit in the garden, did they become more like God? That's, that's what Satan said. He said, 
If you eat that fruit, you'll become more like God. Did they become more like God? No. They became less like God. But in redemption, one of the things that Jesus does is he starts to restore God's image in you. So that when people look at you, they go, who is her father? Who is his father? What, what must his father, her father be like? Because that child is like him. The Holy Spirit, by grace, begins to work that restoration of God's image so that your character begins to reflect his character, so that you love like he loves. That's the relationship between the gospel and love your neighbor. Love your neighbor isn't the gospel, but you can't really love your neighbor apart from the gospel, apart from what Jesus has done for you, apart from what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. And as you think about these things, it's my prayer that your trust would be in Christ, but that you would make sure that your marching orders are from God's word, not the world, so that we live the way that God says we're to live, so that we love the way that God says to love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. We ask that you would work your truth in our hearts by your spirit and that more and more we would indeed reflect your image. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.